This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Tech billionaires are not regular people like you and me. They're not even like the vast majority of people on this planet, as we know from the behavior of people like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Peter Thiel, Jeff Bezos, to name just a few. And they literally want to leave us behind. In his new book, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, Douglas Rushkov traces the origins of the mindset in science and technology through its current expression in missions to Mars, island bunkers, and the metaverse. He's here to talk with Commonweal Features Editor Alex Stern on this episode of the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Alex. It's good to see you here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your conversation with Douglas Rushkoff? Thanks, Dominic. Good to be here. Sure. So uh, Douglas Rushkoff is a media theorist and writer based at CUNY, Queens. He's been writing about tech and internet culture for many years. Most recently, he's been a critic of Silicon Valley and the way it's taken over our attention and much of the economy. We talked about a number of topics, including the misanthropic attitudes of tech billionaires, the recent crypto crash, and the prospects for a more humane economy. Thanks. Why don't we take a listen? Douglas Rushkoff, welcome to the Commonweal Podcast. Thanks for having me. So your book, Survival of the Richest, opens with vignette of sorts where you meet with some billionaire and multimillionaire tech investors at a luxury resort. Can you just start by talking a little bit about how this very interesting meeting came about and what you ended up talking about with these investors? I get invited to do talks for wealthy people in tech a lot. It's like I'm a hired intellectual dominatrix to come in and tell them the error of their ways and how they're taking the people's internet and turning it into a tool of extraction and control and all that. And so they, I think they invite me for the entertainment value and the occasional tidbit on at least how to avoid looking like they're doing what they want to do anyway. And I thought this was one of those. And it wasn't. It turned out I was in the green room. And rather than bringing me out to a stage to speak, they brought in these five super wealthy guys who started asking me all of these really binary questions about the digital future. Basically, where to put their bets, you know, on Ethereum or Bitcoin, on virtual reality or augmented reality. Then one of them got around and they said, Alaska or New Zealand, right? Meaning where should they build their bunker for the event? And that's what they called it, the event, which is like the (laughs) electromagnetic pulse or climate catastrophe or social unrest or virus that, that makes the world unlivable and forces them or allows them to retreat to their their fantasy fortified bunker. And, you know, and I spent most of the time with them, as I do, tweaking them, trying to poke holes in their worldview. So I'd ask, you know, who's going to guard this place from the likes of us when we're hungry, you know, and the hundreds of millions of climate refugees. And then they were talking about how they've got Navy SEALs waiting, you know, at, at fully fueled helicopters in standby mode that they just jump in, you know, with the, you call them on speed dial. And then I would ask stuff like, well, how are you going to pay for your Navy SEALs to protect you after your money's worthless? So I think you use this kind of in the book to, to jump off and talk about what you refer to as the mindset, which I took to be the kind of 
elite or tech elite worldview. Can you describe what makes up that mindset in your view and, and how it might differ from the mindset of sort of previous generations of the wealthy? The wealthy have always followed this model, what I call the insulation equation, which is how do I earn enough money to protect myself <laughs> from the damage I've created by earning money in this way? So you use even technology that way, like, you know, Thomas Jefferson's dumbwaiter was there not really to save his enslaved workers the labor of climbing up the stairs, but to save him and his guests the, uh, I guess, the indignity of having to see the enslaved people. You know, the food just arrived magically, like it was from a, a, a Star Trek replicator. So it was a way right. of kind of hiding or insulating them from the reality of labor. But I guess the difference now is that these technologies really do play into this fantasy that nature can be tamed and absolutely controlled, that you can create some kind of a synthetic artificial bubble in which you can live completely distinct from the externalized costs of the way you're living. I mean, it's an old understanding of humans, you know, that human beings are controllable. Since Francis Bacon and the invention of uh, empirical science, where he said that science will let us take nature by the forelock and hold her down and submit her to our will, right? We've looked at technology and science that way, as a way of kind of deanimating and controlling any threatening, unpredictable thing. You know, now we've got a, really a generation of technologists coming out of Stanford and other institutions that truly believe that this is an attainable goal and are willing to either create chaos and pain for the rest of us or are using the chaos and pain that they're creating for the rest of us as the excuse to go build their seasteading Mars colonies and upload their consciousness that that somehow computing and computer technology and digital technology, because it's such a, an abstracted kind of symbol system, since it's a simulation engine, they really feel that previous wealthy people who had to go colonize existing worlds, that they can synthesize a pre-colonized world for their escape. So you kind of mentioned there already a little bit how this mindset depends on a particular view of science one that you might call scientism that kind of is associated with a version, at least of behaviorism, which focuses on how people make decisions and how to influence them or nudge them. You call this in the book the kind of perpetuation of an unacknowledged value system. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about what that value system is and how it relates both to science and to the tech industry's model of sort of addiction by design. Well, scientism as opposed to science, you know, scientism is this very materialist belief system. It ends up, you know, scientism, which sees, you know, even life as just a chemical process. There's nothing going on here. Human beings aren't even conscious. We're just consciousness is an illusion perpetrated by our genes to get us to of keep the DNA going. There, there's basically nothing going on here. It's this now, I think, widely rejected understanding of evolution that was espoused by people like Richard Dawkins, which was really more about 
making sure nobody believes in God or anything strange than promoting any kind of real science. Because science, real science, of course, is a model. It's questions. It's wonder. It's they, real scientists keep questioning themselves and turning everything over. They are mm-hmm. never certain. You know, you remember your bio, biology teacher in ninth grade, they would always say, this is just a model. We don't, <laughs> half of what I'm telling you is going to turn out to be not true. You know, that's, that's the way science should work. They don't because it's using it for very different reasons. So once they can justify, there's nothing going on here. There's no soul. There's no magic. There's no God. There's no emotions. There's no love. These are all nothing. Then it's much easier to exploit and dominate people. Some of these scientists that I was arguing with who were telling me that I was a crazy superstitious fool for basically having studied and understood the last 200 years of accepted philosophy and sociology. I see them. They're photographed on Jeffrey Epstein's plane heading out to the TED conference. And it's a very reductive, utilitarian understanding of humans that dovetails perfectly well with extractive corporate capitalism and the sort of industrial age logic of you're only worth what you are worth to the market rather than you as a human being having some intrinsic worth in the way that Mr. Rogers might tell us that we're special just the way we are. So let's maybe back up and go back in time a little bit. This version of the internet and the tech industry in general that we have today, which has this obvious sort of unrelenting market-driven focus wasn't necessarily the way things had to turn out. You write about the optimism about the internet in the 1990s, especially among writers in the cyberpunk movement. Can you talk a little bit about what that optimism was based on and what kind of vision of the internet it had, how you think it it got undermined during the dot-com boom and after that? Yeah, the early internet, was really um, very much characterized by remnants of the 1960s psychedelic counterculture. That was the community that was building this. As soon as the military really turned over ARPANET to the public, the next phase was very countercultural and psychedelic. It was, you know, San Francisco, Stuart Brand, Howard Rydgold, uh, Berkeley people, and That was when I got interested in the net. And I actually, my most psychedelic friends from college had ended up flying out to California to work on the net. And it seemed odd to me that, you know, grateful deadheads were interested in computers. You know, it just didn't make sense. So I flew out there. That's how I became a writer about this. And I saw that they were working at Intel or Sun during the day and coming home at night and scraping the buds off cactuses and having peyote trips at night (laughs) and staying up till two in the morning, rendering fractal equations on Silicon Graphics workstations and then projecting them at raves by the weekend. It was like, what was this culture? And it was because really computers and the Internet turned what had been, you know, what a computer person might call a read-only medium into a read-write medium. We grew up watching TV, reading newspapers. Mm-hmm. Everything was given to us, and we accepted it at face value unless you became a Steven Spielberg and then made those images. With the Internet, it seemed that oh, wait a minute, we are going to become the content. These media are all fungible and participatory, and this is going to create a very different understanding of our world, even hypertext. I remember I went on the Larry King show back then to explain what the internet and what hypertext was, and I was 
saying how you could go from here and you click on something and then that'll take you over there and you click on that, it'll take you over there. And even that was like mind blowing for people to imagine, right? That you would play a game where you open a drawer and think a thing, open a thing and you're reading the book and then you read the book and you go to the place. It was like, what, how, what? It was that new. So those of us who were involved in computers and technology in the early 90s or late 80s even, we were thinking, oh my God, this is going to allow for new limitless possibilities of the kind of the collective human imagination to do stuff we hadn't even thought of before. So it was all about the new combinations, new possibilities. And then along came, you know, Wired magazine and uh -huh. decided that the internet would, it's not about unleashing the wild possibilities of the human imagination. It's about fostering the market, that the internet is going to save the NASDAQ stock exchange, which had just been through the great biotech crash of 1987. Don't worry now, because of the internet, we're going to be able to increase the surface area of the marketplace. So we don't have to colonize other countries anymore and subjugate brown people and take their resources. Now, everything, human attention is going to become the new surface area for the market. And they believe they, they did a cover called The Long Boom, where they hypothesized that thanks to the internet, the market will grow exponentially, uninterrupted, globally, forever. You know, that was that what they thought. This is it. Expo capitalism can now go meta on itself. We can go exponential. And the, people believed it. Alan Greenspan believed it. He said, we're in a new paradigm. The markets might just keep going, and, you know, and he was he was an old friend of Ayn Rand. So it's no wonder that this was like the libertarian dream. But it ended up changing the whole energy of technology. So instead of developing technologies for people to use to expand who they are, we were using technologies on people to make them more predictable. Because once you're betting on a market, you want a predictable outcome. You want to increase the probability that the thing you bet on is going to come true. So you're not going to make technologies that let people go wild and do unpredictable things. You're going to use technology and the behavioral finance that you're talking about. You're going to think, how can I take all that we know about behavioral finance and embed it in online platforms so that people do the things that generate the most profit for whoever owns the platform? So you mentioned there a little bit the kind of the sort of standard tech business model since then has become about going meta. Can you just explain that a little bit more and give maybe a few more examples of how a tech startup, say, conceives of it, of it the way that it should make money and also what the social consequences of that kind of going meta business model? Ever since Jack Welch took over General Electric, which he did in the 1980s, he had this moment where he realized he made less money making and selling a washing machine than he did lending money to somebody to buy that washing machine. Right. And that's when he went, oh my gosh, not in these words, but GE needs to go meta. We're going to sell all of these productive assets and real things where people are getting materials out of the ground and assembling them and shipping them and making them. And we're just going to go into the abstracted world, one level above that, of financing the purchase of washing machines. 
right? And for a while, he made a ton of money doing that. And Harvard Business School said, oh, this is the new model of the future. Get out of productive industries and into financialize your company as quickly as possible. Go one level up. And that's what, you know, uh, Tim O'Reilly, great internet publisher, he called it Web 2, where, you know, when you're online, there's all these little dot-com companies that are competing with each other for customers. He goes, when you see that, what you do is go one level above that. And you become a website that aggregates all of those competing businesses. And the problem is, once you do that, and then if there's a bunch of aggregators, what do you do then? Well, I guess then you level up and become the aggregator of aggregators and the aggregator of aggregator of aggregators. Mm -hmm. This was the same thing that digital technology did to finance. So we used to have a marketplace. Then we had stocks that represented that marketplace. Then we had derivatives that represent those stocks. With digital, you can have derivatives of derivatives of derivatives, right? You can start doing stuff that you wouldn't, no human being would be able to calculate the spreadsheet of derivatives of derivatives. But once you have digital technology, you can keep going meta on the markets to the point where in 2013, the derivatives exchange, ITEX, bought the New York Stock Exchange, right? So the New York Stock Exchange was consumed by its own abstraction. And then, so that's why you have so many people thinking meta, whether it's Ray Kurzweil wanting to upload his consciousness to the computer, whether it's Peter Thiel writing the book from zero to one. That's how you do business. You go one order of magnitude above your competition. Because if it's not 10x more than the other thing, then don't bother doing it because everybody else is going to compete and find scapegoats and get in trouble. You go one level above, or Bezos even, just go to Mars, right? Just get one level above the teeming masses, the competing horrible masses, and become the self-sovereign individual above the rest. That's the ultimate kind of billionaire mindset. It's why they want to fantasize about living in a bunker or living on Mars or living in a seasteading community, that they are, they've leveled up from the rest of us. Another example of this sort of attempt to level up would be crypto. So the crypto crash, including the bankruptcy of Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX, took place obviously after your book was published, but you describe a lot of the dynamics that kind of precipitated it. So I'm going to quote from your book very briefly. You say, while crypto investors gamble through investing or eke out small margins by mining coins themselves, smarter players look to become the casino and build the exchanges where all this trading takes place. So crypto, it seems like a version of, of this going meta happening on fast forward. So what do you think led to the downfall of that industry, if it is indeed the downfall of that industry? And what do you think will happen next? Crypto wasn't meant as an industry. You know, the crypto or Bitcoin really came out of the Occupy Wall Street movement. It was that sentiment. It was that bankers were financializing our world to the point where we wanted to, and I consider myself part of Occupy, we wanted to occupy reality again. But to say, no, that conditions on the ground are what matter more than this financialized meta sphere. And yeah. what Bitcoin was for was to allow people to do peer-to-peer interaction, you know, peer-to-peer exchanges authenticated using basically PGP, pretty good privacy, basic cryptography was going to allow you to know that it's me and me to know that it's you. And we're not going to double deal each other. 
And it was for that. It was so that we could take back our transaction system from these banks that were abusing it and had legal legal monopolies over anything. You know, you've got to borrow money from the bank in order to transact with another person. And the banks were no longer trustworthy. They were extractive. They were a rentier class. The problem is Bitcoin was just sucked into capitalism, right? So instead of using it for something else, we used Bitcoin just to reify the rules and priorities of capitalism. So it was almost a meta form. It was almost pure. It's it, here's just here's a symbol and it's going to be created. It's an artificially scarce symbol. So come in and people started to invest in it just because they knew it was scarce. And it's funny, the same thing that happened to the internet, but right. took 10 or 20 years to happen, happened in crypto in two years, right? right? We just thought it was rather instant, which was in a way great because it exposed the fallacy of all of these systems. You know, I, I felt in some ways like once Sam Bankman fried who had tried to go meta on crypto, and it was the kind of the perfect story that it would expose the underlying fallacy of capitalism the way we do it anyway. You know, right. it's like in a microcosm. It was this perfect, perfect little mini movie. But of course it didn't. It just made people who are not doing crypto feel like, well, at least the stock market's the real economy and these financial companies are real. But now we've seen Silicon Valley Bank fail. You know, right. their bank. That's the only one that startup people wanted to invest to have their money in. It was the cool one. Yet really the only bank that understands what we really mean. It's okay. Now that bank's gone. So maybe what you really mean has no foundation. We'll have more of Alex's conversation with Douglas Rushkoff in a minute. I'm Ellen Koenig, Executive Director of Commonweal. With our centennial just around the corner in 2024, now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program. Thank you very much for your support. It helps make everything we do at Commonweal, our publications, our programming, and this podcast possible. Yeah, so let's switch gears a little bit. You talk about how when the the tech industry shifts its attention to maybe trying to solve some of the problems that it's been involved in creating, it carries this mindset with it. So this the mindset kind of strongly affects the values and strategies of philanthropy that that originate in the tech industry and spread beyond the tech industry too, and even influence the government's approach to a lot of different problems. How does the industry approach philanthropy and why do you think it typically fails? Well, a tech bro on acid is still just a tech bro on acid, it turns out. You know, these guys will go to Burning Man or go to South America and do some ayahuasca with a shaman and they have the great insight, right? Oh, the world's imperiled. We've got to do something. The mother, mother Earth goddess Gaia has spoken to me. Rather than most people feel themselves connected one with everything and get very humble after a psychedelic experience like that. These guys, it just feeds right into their God complex. They come back thinking that, ah, I have been chosen just as I was chosen to be a billionaire social media chief. Now I'm chosen by God to save humanity from itself. So I'm going to develop eco-village software stack blockchain orchestrated 
plan for government and society and economics and schools and save the world from itself. So they take again, they they adopt that techno solutionist godlike understanding of themselves where what Stuart Brand told them, you know, we are as gods and may as well get good at it. You know, they feel like, okay, so we are those gods. And they have a kind of a systems approach. And they'll have all these different ways of talking about it. Basically, humanity is in a bad system and they've got the better system and they're going to migrate us from where we are to this new place. Almost like, let's reboot civilization. You know, let's do civilization 2.0, as if you can just do that kind of from the top in this perfect way. And You know, God bless them. They mean well, but these are totalizing solutions that usually treat people like the iron fillings that go between magnetic poles. So it's like, you know, Musk is a magnet and Teal is a magnet and Zuckerberg is a magnet. And the rest of us are just the little iron filings that are going to move around in their God created map of the world. And they don't understand that social change really happens from the bottom up that it really does take more than manipulating people. But yeah, that, but the, the, where it affects philanthropy is that they, they just as they only want to do a company that's going to make $100 billion, right? They're never going to be satisfied with a nice pizzeria that serves people in the neighborhood in a scaled, normal, non-destructive fashion. They only understand solutions that are global and universal. So they want to do $100 million X prize projects. You can su- submit an idea for a project that is scalable and is huge. You know what they call moonshots. It's got to be a moonshot if it's going to work. And I'm like, no, actually, the whole point should be no moonshots, <laughs> no giant moves. No, the moonshots are brittle. One size fits all solutions of the industrial age didn't work, right? That's why the whole world's using cars and it turns out cars was stupid, right? As a mode of public transportation. So maybe what we want is lots of smaller distributed solutions and to do as little as we can at scale rather than as do everything at scale as much as possible. So the latest kind of product being touted by the tech industry is AI, obviously, including the sort of chatbots that are now being integrated into search engines like Bing and Google. As you point out in the book, it's interesting that tech people are both touting these products and sounding the alarm about them at the same time, including people like Elon Musk, but also Sam Altman from OpenAI. But what do you think of the kind of both the excitement and the sort of fear around AI that's coming out of the industry right now? I don't know. Part of it, I don't believe. It's baby, watch out. I'm a really, really powerful lover. You might not be able to, <laughs> let me warn you in advance here, you know, this is going to be a big deal. Yeah. Shut up. You know, so when I hear these guys saying, oh, we better be careful, you know, this AI that we've got here, this would just freaking take over civilization, right? This is going to be it. I don't know. I mean, If AI is a threat, I feel like it's almost more a threat the way OxyContin is a threat. It's not that it is so powerful in itself, but I am interested to see when, really these are language models, when AIs know everything about language, you know, which is the main way that we negotiate society, 
and they're told to achieve specific ends by any means necessary, things get dark, right? We already have seen it in the way that algorithms work. I want you to get somebody's attention by any means necessary. What is it going to do? We're going to polarize a nation into two ridiculous and ir irreconcilable extremes, perhaps irreversibly, right? And that's just that was just to sell what social media accounts, which aren't even don't even cost money. It was basically to to sell human attention to the highest bidder. So if you take that then to the AI extreme, yeah, it could get, it, it's pretty sad where it brings humanity, but I don't see it as AI as a conscious thing taking over civilization so much as AI as a powerful tool in the hands of people like the people I'm writing about in my book could really wreak havoc on us. But that's why it's if we understand the mindset that these people have and they're promoting, we're going to be way less likely to adopt their strategies as our own and to use their tools. I mean, really, are you going to go into a Web3 metaverse run by someone created by someone like Mark Zuckerberg, who is self-consciously modeling himself after Augustus Caesar, <laughs> if, you know? That's are you really going to start using networks and doing things to your mind that are made by people who believe that humanity is just the larval stage of a species and that we're like the maggots on the planet. And the only ones of us that matter are the ones that sprout wings and get off to another planet as human cyborgs. Come on, this is just nutsy stuff. And even if it's true, it's unnecessarily cruel. You can be nice to the maggots because we're here too. So I feel like I, the more people are aware of this, the more that they will work against this tech industry belief that human beings are untrustworthy, that human beings are the problem that needs to be solved with technology. And rather we recognize, oh, technology is the tool, is a tool of capitalism being used to extract value from us. And the, the extent to, to which we can avoid it and enjoy one another instead in real life, in our real bodies, is the extent to which we will maintain some control and power and solidarity and constituencies capable of fighting these brittle, tiny, and mentally ill billionaires. So last question. At the end of the book, you propose a way of resisting the mindset, which you call founded economics or this circular economy. This is also related to something you've written about in the past, digital distributism. Could you explain kind of what these concepts mean and why you think they can help bring us to a better place? I mean, most simply, people hear about buying locally <laughs> and why that matters. It's funny, I was just listening to someone on Bloomberg arguing that community banks are just a stupid relic of the past and now that everything happens online, consumers don't need community banks, right? Because you can get it from a big bank through an app. I'm like, yeah, but it's not about what the individual consumer gets in terms of convenience. The point of a community bank was so that your community has some financial independence so that you can circulate value and it, through your community rather than just extracting value from your community. So I'm asking people to consider what would it be like to earn 
one dollar, the same dollar 10 times rather than $10 once, right? Walmart comes to your town. They will extract the value and deliver it to shareholders somewhere else. How is your town actually generating, creating value? It's not, right? And eventually, once they've sucked the value, they go away, they close, and they move to the next town. So when you start thinking about, oh my gosh, how can we actually create and share value amongst ourselves? All these other possibilities open up. So I use a really simple example. It's like you've got to hang a picture on the wall and you need a drill. What are you going to do? You're going to go to Home Depot, get a minimum viable product drill, plug it in, drill your little hole, stick it in the garage, take it out again maybe a year later, and it's not going to charge and you're going to throw it away. So what have you done? You know, you spent 50 bucks on this minimum viable because it was cheap, $49.95 on your minimum viable product drill. Some kids had to go into a mine to get the rare earth metals and the cobalt to make the thing. Some new kids are going to be down in Brazil picking on the junk heap to find renewable pieces of metal in that in the the drill that you threw away, and you spent 50 bucks that left your town and your community that could have been used for something else. The alternative would be to go down the block to Bob, right? Because Bob works, you hear him working on stuff all the time. He's got tons of tools. (laughs) And you go, Bob, I need a drill to make a hole in the wall to hang a picture. Bob's going to give you a big metal industrial plug in the wall drill that maybe he got from his dad or that he bought because he really, or better yet, Bob's going to come and say, let me see where you want to drill that hole. And he's going to come over with his drill and a bunch of bits. And he's going to say, you really should go into the stud just six inches to the right. And then really, what's a stud? I'll show you. And he got a stud tool in it. And Bob's going to put it. Why don't we want to invite Bob to give us that drill or to drill the hole for us? Because then we're going to owe something to Bob. Oh, no. What does that mean? Bob might ask me for a favor. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's called community, right? That's why you, when someone moves into the neighborhood, you bring them brownies, not because they need brownies. You bring them brownies so that they owe you something. So they have an excuse to bring back the plate the next day or the next week and do something for you, right? So the funny thing is when I mentioned this at a dinner talk recently, and I used this example and someone got up and they said, well, yeah, but if everybody's borrowing drills, what happens to the people who are working at the drill company? What are they going to do? So you, you understand <laughs> what they're saying. It's like people have jobs not because we need work done. People have jobs so we can justify letting them participate in the spoils of capitalism. That's really dumb. What if we don't need to work as many days? How could we deal with that? What if we could only, we only have enough work for people to work three days a week? Then we're going to have to find ways to share the available work with each other, right? And again, it's simple, right? But that's not the model we have now. We are currently believe that we need to sell more drills next year than this year in order for the economy to work. And that's because we have an underlying operating system that's depending on expansion and growth in order to stay still. And it's not fair to human beings to have us serving a model rather than remake the model to serve us. And that's really what should be the primary insight of a digital age is that we can reprogram this thing to serve us rather than hurt us. And the leading programmers and developers are all accepting the rules of expansionary corporate capitalism as the rules of nature and programming to conform to them rather than to challenge them. Well, Douglas, thanks thanks so much for coming on the Commonweal Podcast. This was a great conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. And God bless the Commonweal. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.
Douglas Rushkoff's new book is Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, now available from Norton. You can listen to Douglas's podcast, Team Human, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.